On this episode, you'll be hearing from the first policy expert we've had on our show, and we don't think we could have brought you a better one. We'll be diving into the important topic of telehealth policy, and you'll be introduced shortly to Kyle Zebley, Senior Vice President of Public Policy at the American Telemedicine Association and Executive Director of ATA Action. It is important for us to recognize this interview could not have been possible without the great coordinated cooperation from Gina Chella, Senior VP of Strategic Connections, and Ann Mon Johnson, CEO of the ATA. So we want to thank you both here as well, along with all the great work your team does every day to support this common mission. If you've been listening to our show, you know my co-host Mike Garrow and I share a calling to advocate and drive change in stroke care using education and community building and by advocating for technology-driven solutions like telehealth that can help to support a best life after stroke. With that in mind, we opened our discussion with Kyle in the very evening that the PHE, or Pandemic Health Emergency Waivers, that temporarily expanded access and reimbursement for virtual care were set to expire. We dive into what this all means using the lens of the physical therapist and rehab professional and discuss how these size of temporary relief on telehealth extensions are not good enough to plan long-term solutions to invest in innovation and deliver care to underserved communities like ours in stroke. We've learned lessons through the pandemic of telehealth's ability to bridge care gaps, improve care coordination, and fill healthcare workforce shortages. With all that now known, virtual care delivery could still be in danger of heading over the telehealth cliff, as Kyle explains it well in this episode, without permanent policy changes in action. If you know my story as both a stroke survivor and physical therapist who used telehealth and technology exclusively to rehab at home, you know this episode is indeed personal to me. I would not be here today introducing this episode if I did not have this tool to help in my own recovery. It's hard to believe with all telehealth's benefits, we are still having this discussion around the possible telehealth cliff that still is looming without great ongoing advocacy and support from organizations like the ATA. Mike and I both believe strongly the impacts of policy change will be a critical piece in shaping future delivery of rehabilitative stroke care and recovery into the home with improved outcomes. So let's dive in now and learn more from Kyle. Welcome to our show. This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome to episode 36 of the No Stroke Podcast. My name is Dave Dancero. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Garrow. How are you, Mike? Doing well, David. Um, it's a busy period. I I booked a or actually, you know what? I'll say it. Yeah, I'm making it a surprise visit. So I mean, I don't know how many of my friends in Ireland actually listen to this <laughs> podcast. But I, I, probably not many. Um, other than the, the no stroke community. But yeah, I don't I don't know if, if they're uh, tuning in for the big release here for this oh. episode. But um, yeah. well, but Mike, uh, if, if you want to hold, we can hold the drop until you arrive. Ah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, getting ready. Uh, 
flying out to Dublin tomorrow um, for a little weekend trip, which will be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Friday's birthday, get to meet my buddy's uh, baby who was born over late summer. So really looking forward to it. But yeah, glad we were able to fit this recording in. It was it was a great episode today. You literally bags packed after this. So let's. Uh, this yeah. was. Uh, this was a. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you, you you were able to get this in as well. Um, so let's let's get let's get right to it. Let's. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll I have it in the news. It that relates to this this um, our guest. It's gonna yeah. we're gonna let in shortly. But um, if it, well, spoiler alert. We're gonna be talking a bit about telehealth in this episode. Um, and um, if you remember going back to the beginning, sort of the beginning of the pandemic, we presented some data around physical therapists that there was only maybe 2%. And this was a survey of the American Physical Therapy Association, only about 2% of practicing PTs were using telehealth prior to the start of the pandemic. So recently in the news within the last month, the APD did another, APTA did another review article entitled, uh, Research uh, summary studies show telehealth to be feasible and effective in rehab. And this uh, was a systematic review that looked at more than 2000 patient cases with a variety of conditions. um, And they reveal consistently positive results for telerehab. Um, It looked at a large review that was uh, the study was actually published in the international journal of environmental research and public health. So, I'll put it in the show notes, but I want to just uh, talk about quickly a couple of the takeaways. Um, the it, it was largely of that two hundred thousand is largely uh, evaluated orthopedic conditions, um, but of the probably ten percent of that that were treated um, with neurological conditions, they showed that um, that the results in the um, the outcomes with uh, virtual care were equal, if not superior to uh, conventional care. So um, big sort of change in, um, in, in, in sort of the, I'm not going to say the APT was a little bit late to, to kind of um, address telehealth and supporting it, but now they're fully on board. They realize that their, um, their patient, uh, the community that they serve and their professional membership, they want things like telehealth training. They want things that are going to help support this as another uh, tool to have in their treatment toolbox. So I thought that was really, um, really uh, important to kind of present today before we bring on our, our expert in telehealth. But uh, um, before I, I'd like to hold off and doing that intro to, to maybe talk about, what you wanted to talk about is a recap yeah, from last week. I got some, yeah, I got some in the news. Um, so last week, you know, we, we were able to uh, chat with Dr. Siddiqui, uh, chief medical officer and strategy officer at, at Hyperfine. Um, it was su- such an imp- interesting episode. You know, they're building out really the world's for- first FDA cleared portable MRI machine. Um, you know, doing their part, you know, as we kept iterating to reduce that door to needle time, um, you know, and have drive better outcomes. So super interesting conversation. Uh, I think we alluded to it possibly on the podcast, but they came out and, you know, at least from my bit of in the news this week that I caught was that they had the formal announcement of the new CEO, um, Maria Sainz, who has a, a storied history within um, the medical device space. 
Um, she's been president and CEO of multiple different companies. And, you know, her main focus really is to be able to drive this from a commercial aspect. And I think right now there's something like 90 systems installed globally. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, how that strategy moves forward and how they could commercialize the product into not only, you know, hospital systems and clinics across the U S but globally. Um, so yeah, if you missed that episode, definitely, uh, recommend you go back at Dr. Siaki is a, is, you know, he's a great storyteller. has a, a great passion for what he's doing and just fascinating, fascinating technology. I listened back and I was, I caught at the end and it kind of caught me off guard again that the, he, he was saying that the tech, the, the MRI technology they're building is being researched by someone out in North Carolina who's trying to bring this into space to mm -hmm. actually scan private yeah. of astronauts. Fascinating. Yeah, like, <laughs> it was a it's, it was a it was a great uh great episode, and I hope if yeah. you hadn't chance to catch it that you go back and to listen to one. And I'm never this never gets old when we hear uh our guests wise, right? And mm -hmm. we have another great why coming on here. And because your bags are packed and you're ready to go, I'm going to jump right into our introduction for today's guest. Is that okay, Mike? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. So um, we're very, very, very uh, excited to bring on our guest. So a little bit about our guest. Tonight, we're going to bring on Kyle Zebley. He is the Vice President of Public Policy at the American Telemedicine Association, the ATA, and Executive Director of ATA Action. We'll get into a little bit more about what that is, and Kyle will explain that. But for those of you first that are not familiar with the American Telemedicine Association, the ATA is the only organization that's completely focused on advancing telehealth. And that's today's topic. And it, they're committed to ensuring that everyone has access to safe, affordable, and appropriate care when and where they need it. And this will enable wider reach and to be able to treat more and give more access to care for more people. So uh, Kyle will tell us more about his story shortly, but I think we have a very impressive resume um, and he'll tell us about why he got involved with the ATA. Um, but let me just give you a little bit of more about him. So before joining the ATA, Kyle was the chief, chief of staff at the Office of Global Affairs, the OGA, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He collaborated with senior leadership from the HHS, um, the White House and other cabinet departments develop, advise, and promote U.S. global health policy, including such policy areas as drug pricing, medical devices, global health security, and non-communicable diseases. Um, so before he joined HHS, he worked in Congress as a legislative director, leading legislative team, developing policy and drafting legislation. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as it relates to um, telehealth policy um, that actually uh, is is really on the on, on on front and center, especially in October here. Um, but um, his, his he started his career in Washington. He was a research assistant, and he worked on campaign strategies for clients running for U.S. president. So he has a lot of um, a lot of history in Washington, and we're very excited to bring him in because. Um, as as we've learned, Kyle's a sought after poly, policy expert. He's a frequently quoted in major media coverage in, on topics of telehealth, including recently on Associated Press, Bloomberg, Kaiser Health News, Modern Healthcare, NPR, and Roll Call. And uh, before letting him in, just in January of this year, 
Um, Kyle was named by Politico as one of the four Washington players most poised to say, shape digital health in 2022. So quite impressive. Mike. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Super lucky to have him in and he shared some time with us. Um, you know, it, it's been an area that, you know, we've talked a lot about. So is, you know, and this is often, you know, the, the hurdle that innovators in the space and people trying to drive change through, through, you know, a digital health tele or digital therapeutics often, you know, hit that hurdle, right. It's on the policy and the reimbursement angle. So it was a really interesting, you know, conversation, um, you know, super passionate guy and, you know, we're, you know, we're lucky to have him. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, to my Irish friends who might be listening, sorry if I ruined a surprise. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you Saturday. <laughs> Here we go. Here's Kyle. Enjoy. Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, you know, we we were able to, again, you know, in the intro, kind of highlight some of your, your, your background, really, you know, and, you know, let's, for our listeners, kind of spend a bit of time here before we dive into the meat and potatoes and you know, everything that you're doing with the American Telehealth Association. Um, give us a bit of your background and, and really your why, you know, what drove you to, you know, the role that you're currently in? Well, I, I came to the American Telemedicine Association uh, about two and a half years ago in the summer of 2020, after 10 years in government, and uh, re really had enjoyed my time in government. I, I was always really passionate about the political process, about politics, about policy. And that's what brought me to Washington, D.C. to begin with. And that's what uh, I did certainly in government during my years at Department of Health and Human Services, years working for a member of Congress. Uh, but in that unique moment in time in the summer of 2020, COVID was uh, a couple months old uh, and it had really changed a whole uh, set of aspects about uh, the, the policy landscape and just how we were living. Um, and it's not just the lockdowns, but it was also a lot of the public policies that stemmed from the pandemic. And so, uh, you know, I had heard about telehealth for years uh, during that period of time when I worked for a member of Congress, when I paid attention to the healthcare conversation nationally in the halls of Congress, when I was at the Department of Health and Human Services. And I've heard a lot of speeches, a lot of references to telehealth and to telemedicine, but they would usually uh, couch in the context of something that had not yet happened or were, was really happening at the periphery, uh, was something that was going to happen in the future. And obviously, uh, the pandemic changed that. There were a lot of favorable policies that I saw firsthand uh, in a firsthand way when I was at the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was just such a sexy issue and it was such an important issue. And it had expanded access to care for so many people. And it had become really a part of the present moment. Um, that when I heard there was uh, a job opening to lead the public policy efforts at the ATA, I knew that if I didn't at least try to throw my hat in the ring and express my interest, I would be uh, uh, ruining that for years to come. I would regret it. And so I, I, I threw my hat in the ring and uh, talked to our CEO who had a passionate vision about making sure people had access to care when, when they need it. I was hooked. Um, and... Uh, it started a couple weeks after uh, the, the job offer, and it's been a roller coaster ride ever since. But the why is, uh, you know, at its core, what's driven me good public policy. And, and, and the most immediate why is making sure people have access to clinically appropriate care. And so it's an easy thing to get passionate about. 
Well, so thank you for sharing your why. And thank you. We know this is a real busy time, especially in October. And we're going to get into the why on that uh, as, as it relates to telehealth. But um, before you came into the room, Kyle, we were, I uh, was talking about an update the American uh, Physical Therapy Association did recently on, we always do an in the news segment and we covered um, sort of where their position has changed over the last two years or so. Um, and prior to the update that we just gave, they they had mentioned um, they had they had surveyed their user base, and and um, it was it was very interesting that we went from two percent of all um, physical therapists that had ever used telehealth prior to to now going on a review and showing hundreds and thousands of uh, patient cases and showing in this in this report we talked about how telehealth has proved to be a ability to get people through the pandemic, but also as a tool that really many, many found out that can be just as good or it, as in some cases better than inpatient care. And especially the community that we serve um, with stroke, we really want to talk about how, how do you feel um, how how has the pandemic really accelerated delivery on in across the board in in, in healthcare? And are there areas that you feel that uh, maybe a bit still underserved by telehealth? So uh, the difference between what the patient experience and provider experience was like uh, in regards to telehealth from before the pandemic to now, two and a half years into the pandemic is night and day. It's totally different. Uh, while a lot of the, obviously technology was possible there at the beginning of the pandemic for a variety of reasons, uh, both because of public policy hurdles and barriers and also because of a resistance to change in the healthcare community and among patients, uh, wanting to continue to go into that, uh, that hospital room, go into that doctor's office, go in to see your physical therapist in person and on and on. Uh, there, there had been a, just a huge resistance to change. And so both the culture and the policy had really kept telehealth utilization quite low prior to the pandemic. The unique, circumstances of COVID-19, the idea of, of remaining in your home when all possible, except in a true medical emergency, um, really uh, was perfectly conducive to expanding telehealth. Uh, policymakers were talking to folks like us and like our friends and other major associations. Uh, uh, they, they, they really understood where the barriers were and they lifted those barriers early on state governments did, uh, did similar courses of action. It meant that uh, telehealth utilization exploded. Uh, and, and that's a great uh, uh, data point you, you noted. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, when we talk about, for instance, Medicare Part B fee for service, uh, you had to fit a lot of really uh, extensive criteria um, in order to have any access to virtual care reimbursement through the Medicare program. So prior to the pandemic, you had well less than 1% of total Medicare uh, reimbursements being virtual. At the height of the pandemic in Q2, you know, in, in, in March, April, May of 20, 
2020, you had over 50% of those uh, total Medicare expenditures being reimbursed that were virtual. That's gone down into the 15% threshold, but still exponentially higher than it had been prior to the pandemic. So it's been a night and day change. And it's clear, uh, while we still have some public policy challenges to really truly uh, take care of that low hanging fruit, there is a real sense of permanency because the American people, as our CEO, Ann Mon Johnson often said, got to taste the forbidden fruit during the pandemic and they liked it. They wanna maintain it. They wanna to continue to have access to it. And so we have not only government policies that are moving in alignment with that thought, uh, but also uh, patient sentiment and, and providers embracing it and wanting to continue to use it as a tool. I will say, uh, if it was nice to do, and it was a luxury, but it wasn't a clinically appropriate way to deliver care, that, that would be moot. Um, but what's most important is that you have all of the major medical societies, medical organizations, uh, specialty groups, and, and on and on, that are very clear, and it's buttressed by reams of academic literature that this is a clinically appropriate tool in a lot of circumstances. And so all that we're asking is that we allow for licensed medical professionals to make a determination as to the, the, what, what is clinically appropriate in that and their interactions with the patient. The patient wants it, it's clinically appropriate, and, and providers are increasingly having adopted it and want to continue to have that kind of relationship with the patients. So where, like, so obviously, like, every patient's different, every provider's different in, in the way of, like, what they see is, like, care that they want, right? And, like, if you're close to a, a main hub, I'm here in New York City, you know, it's easy for folks to get in, get to that care. But how do you think about, like, distribution and, like, you know, standardizing telehealth reimbursement across the board, right? Because, I again, it's, it, it's different depending on, on where you are in the country as well, right? Right, no, it is. I, I might quibble with you uh, that anybody fighting midtown traffic uh, <laughs> in the middle of a busy work day, even with the pandemic. I'll give you that. Safe. I'll give you that. Safe, <laughs> access your doctor. Uh, yeah. And and we do know that uh, telehealth is uh, a, a, not just a rural uh, tool, but also an ur urban mm -hmm. and suburban tool, and it, everyone stands to benefit from it. Um, listen, we have the most complicated healthcare system in the world. Uh, which means that if there, there's another system out there in another country who, who has a healthcare system that you, you as an American might like and want to emulate, you don't have to go far. It's tried somewhere in the U.S. system. Uh, sure. we, have, uh, we have Medicare, uh, we have, which is truly a kind of traditional uh, national insurance model, not all that dissimilar to the United Kingdom or Canada or Australia. Uh, we've got uh, the Affordable Care Act with subsidies, which is not dissimilar from the German system. We have a very closed system uh, like the Veterans Administration, uh, which is a one-stop shop for all your needs and on and on. Obviously, most Americans receive uh, insurance through an, uh, an employer. Uh, however, uh, that, that doesn't mean that there can't be some level of policies that encourage at least coverage parity. And right now, with very few exceptions, just about every payer in the in the country, uh, whether it's a, a commercial payer or a, a public payer, covers telehealth. We've made enormous advances. Uh, I do think it might be 
uh, a little bit of, um, uh, will take a little bit of, of time to standardize it. I mean, there's nothing standard between commercial coverage plans, let alone uh, all of the various governmental programs which have their own way of covering and reimbursing telehealth services. I will say, it, you know, I spend a lot of my time, I handle both federal policy and state policy. I spend a lot of my time on Medicare uh, Part B fee for service which has an annual physician fee schedule, which is very exacting. This is what we'll cover and this is the rate that we'll cover it at. And our members care about that, even if they're not handling uh, you know, Medicare beneficiaries, because that sets the standard. If there's anything that really does drive the rest of the payers in the same direction, it's what our largest single payer covers and that's Medicare. And so that's really helped normalize and in some degree standardize uh, how telehealth is covered and reimbursed. Um, and, and so, you know, again, it's, it's a lot of different payers, but uh, that's probably the best way to drive the coverage. Kyle, um, yeah, it is very interesting. When in, on, on, the, on the rehab provider side, um, we weren't always um, included under this what they call the pandemic health emergency. And, and it's hard to, um, when, and, and, I, and I practice, I've practiced the last four years exclusively telehealth. Uh, but when, 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 we, when I talk to other, others in the field that are hesitant to adopt this and put it in their toolbox and maybe as a part of a hybrid care model down the road, they're always, they always comes back to, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Can you talk to the, there's something sort of significant about October because the last time they were renewed, the, it was in July. So is it, can you talk to, you know, what, what's going on on that front on the, on the federal level and, and how that might relate to um, what, what's, I, I heard the term, the, the, the telehealth or the, the, the cliff. And I, could you, you talk about that? That's scary. Yeah, now it is. Uh, so, uh, Right now, for two and a half years, we have had uh, authority granted by the last Congress, the last president. We've had that public health emergency authority continually renewed in effect. And that public health emergency authority that uh, is now in effect uh, allowed for a, a lot of flexibilities. Uh, some of the notable ones, and they're mostly but not entirely tied to Medicare because that's the biggest federal lever that the federal government can pull, right? Uh, that mostly refers to waivers on geographic and originating sites. I was talking about those restrictions uh, a few minutes ago. That meant that prior to the pandemic, you had to be in a, in a rural area and you had to be within the four walls of a provider's office physically in order to have reimbursable virtual health services, but a head spinning, totally out of date, what looked like progressive policy in 1997 when that was passed into law became uh, really a chain around the neck of the telehealth community. Uh, those restrictions, those geographic originating site restrictions were lifted. Also, uh, what was lifted uh, or what was expanded really were the number of uh, providers that could cover and get reimbursed for telehealth services. And that includes PTs, that includes occupational therapists, that includes speech therapists. Um, obviously that's something that the telehealth community is uh, very much supportive of. We really think that uh, our medical professionals 
who are licensed and able to, again, in a clinically appropriate way, deliver care virtually, should be able to work at the top of their license. They should be having those services covered and reimbursed uh, if it's in the best interest of the patient and it's clinically appropriate. So we're obviously very supportive of that expanded number of providers, uh, providers and services that can deliver uh, those services. They are all contingent and they're all temporary in nature uh, on this public health emergency. And so there's legislation out there that would make these uh, flexibilities permanent. Uh, we did get uh, earlier this year in March in the omnibus bill, uh, a, a, a massive government funding bill that did many things and, and including uh, gave us this, gave us 151 days, roughly five months, post the end of the public health emergency for most of these Medicare related flexibilities that came about during the pandemic. So that's five months uh, you know, uh, of walking around uh, money, you could almost say, uh, but it's hardly certainty. And it's no way to run a healthcare system. And while we were so thankful to Congress uh, for including that in the omnibus and for the president for signing it. We want at least, uh, ideally, you know, if we can't get permanency for these flexibilities, at least a longer runway. Uh, we're, we're talking about a fifth of the U.S. economy in the, in the U.S. healthcare industry. It takes a long time to turn this giant ship of state uh, and to make sure that there's levels of investment and innovation to allow this to continue to thrive and be on offer for the American people. So we did just get literally within, you know, talking here, October 13th, um, half past five, we got about an hour and a half ago. They made us sweat it uh, because the PHE was due to expire today. We've got another extension and that should get us for a full 90 days into mid January, which means once again, we can breathe that sigh of temporary relief but we want that long-term certainty. And I know for sure, of course, we wanna make sure um, that we're, there's no backsliding and going over that telehealth cliff where folks have access on one side of the pandemic uh, and the public health emergency uh, and, and lose access on the other side. Yeah, and to that kind of access, right? Can you speak more to how telehealth, like take David as a PT, for example, you know, the you know, through the pandemic and kind of now, you know, he was able to deliver care, you know, do it virtually. But now, you know, you're in a state where if you if David's licensed in, you know, Rhode Island, that he can actually take care of people across state lines. Right. Like, how is that starting to change? Because I think it's impacted, you know, we've been heavily involved in, in digital health. Right. And like that for digital startups per se, that's in the MSK space, like they would need a provider literally in every state. And it's, you know, hurting the scalability of some of these companies that could make real change. There's no question about it. Uh, we're, we're, we obviously live uh, in a, in a, in, in, with a federalist system. And, and, and by that is, of course, we have tremendous um, authority particularly for the practice of medicine and the practice of uh, healthcare uh, for each individual state legislature and state government. Uh, and that's been built up since the founding of the Republic. And um, unlike a lot of other countries, which have uh, a single licensure model for each of the medical professions, here in the United States, we have each uh, state that has unto itself the authority to set the standards for the practice of medicine uh, and all of the various uh, specialties and services uh, therein. 
that means that each state can go their own way and each state has their own rules and, and, and there are no two states that are totally alike and licensure is a major one. You are not licensed to the United States government uh, or uh, re responsible to a, a single uh, United States Board of Medicine or Board of Physical Therapy or a nursing board or on and on. You're, you're responsible and your license uh, must uh, is really re responsible to a, a state board. Um, and, and so uh, it makes the interstate practice of medicine difficult and it obviously inhibits the full potential of telehealth. And we know technologically speaking, it's very easy to have an Alaskan talk to a Florida doctor or a New Yorker uh, talk to a California doctor. Um, uh, during the pandemic, there were a number of temporary measures that were put in place, emergency measures that allowed for a huge number of providers to deliver care across state lines because the states were saying in this time of emergency, let's expand our provider pool and allow for licensed medical professionals in good standing in other states to deliver care to patients in our state. And that made a heck of a lot of sense. And, uh, and, and the, sky, the sky didn't fall in. Uh, there weren't reams of cases of care that was given incorrectly. Um, and we think it was real success. Uh, unfortunately, just about every one of those temporary orders, there were over 40 of them, have expired. And now we live in a world where we, we, we have to find other ways to break down those barriers. There have been a couple of things that have been in place for a number of years. One of them are the various licensure compacts by various medical professions, like by uh, physicians, by psychiatrists, by nurses, um, by physical therapists, and those are ways uh, that you can, if your state adopts them, you can work in each of the states that have adopted them. Uh, there is also unique licensure registration models that we're seeing take hold in the states. There are a lot of other examples where, where states are, uh, you know, and reputable national bodies are saying there's lots of common sense exceptions that can be given to the strict enforcement of licensure in terms of second opinion consultations, follow-up care, continuity of care, folks that are traveling, folk, you know, students, uh, and, and, et cetera. Um, but we wanna continue to build this momentum to continue to break down these barriers to have ideally at the end of the day, uh, an ideal world would be the, the driver's license model. States never had to, they hadn't wanted to, accept drivers that have driver's licenses at a state to be able to drive on their state's roads. However, for a number of reasons, including the federal government encouraging them and offering inducements and uh, a little bit of a stick in addition to the carrot, we were able to get a driver's license model where states uh, in a reciprocal fashion uh, respect other states' uh, drivers. Uh, we should be driving in that direction. You mentioned that um, just as we were recording this now on the 13th, we, we kind of got a little reprieve that just came down shortly that, that uh, a short while ago. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about what what's happening at the federal level to make this more permanent? And Mike had mentioned, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of innovation and in rehab, too. And there's a lot of digital health companies that um, are not are not necessarily going into this space because of the uncertainty. So it's kind of it's kind of squashing some innovation. Um, what what happened? What we hear, I hear a lot about HR 40, 4040, which is Advancing Telehealth Beyond COVID Act. Um, it has some good momentum 
it passed overwhelmingly in the House and it's at at the level of the Senate right now. And 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 are we where are we with that? Maybe you could talk to that. Yeah. So at the end of July, uh, there was a bill, as you mentioned, H.R. 4040, uh, that was introduced by Representative Liz Cheney and Representative Debbie Dingell, a bipartisan bill uh, that would extend until the end of 2024 a lot of the flexibilities that we've been talking about today, uh, including the, adver- uh, the, the ma- maintaining the, uh, the expansion for providers. Uh, that's something that we're very supportive of. Uh, we've long had bipartisan, bicameral champions. We had a champion in the Trump White House uh, with President Trump and, and seeking to expand access to virtual care services. That support continued very strongly with President Biden's support. Um, and so, you know, we have all the, the right piece of legislation, other bills in addition to H.R. 4040. Um, we had that action earlier this year in the omnibus that g- gave us that five months. Uh, H.R. 4040 was so popular indeed that it passed uh, 416 votes to 12. Uh, so 96% of the House uh, lined up in support and, and passed it. And, and, would, and if it became law, would give us that two years. Uh, it is sitting with the Senate right now. We are hopeful that the Senate will act on it. Uh, right now, the Congress is in recess as we gear up in less than a month for the 2022 midterm elections. There is this period of time the so-called lame duck uh, session of Congress, where uh, the, this current Congress comes back uh, before the new Congress is sworn in the beginning of January. And a lot of times um, at the end of the uh, of a year, at the end of a Congress, there's lots of homework need doing uh, that, that, that for one reason or another, Congress had put off and upcoming deadlines and things that will end. And so hopefully, uh, again, perhaps in another big must-pass package, or maybe just acting in a standalone fashion to, to vote on H.R. 4040, we'll get our bipartisan champions to uh, take the lead from the House and hopefully uh, pass these good policies into law and get them to the president's desk. And one of the things, you know, given all this support, you might say, why, what's the catch? Why aren't we seeing Congress act? Uh, unfortunately, despite that, really broad support. A lot of times Congress doesn't act until they absolutely have to. And on a lot of these policies, not all of them, but on a lot of them, they already have acted on that five months of flexibilities post PHE. So they might say, just hold your horses, you know, we'll get to that, but there are other pressing things now. Um, and, uh, and also there's just a lot of gridlock in general that means that rather than move standalone bills, they usually are these big, massive kind of omnibus packages that, that get a lot of different policies stuffed in them. And sometimes there's just not room even for popular bipartisan issues. Um, but we think there's no time like the present. We do think that this uncertainty has um, meant that there hasn't been the level of investment and the level of certainty that's required to uh, really remove the fear out of the marketplace and out of the telehealth community. Um, so that's why we're pressing so hard. And I think it's a 50-50 shot that we'll get Congress to act. There are provisions that weren't included in HR 4040, uh, like a provision for high deductible health plans that's very favorable for telehealth, like ability to prescribe controlled substances remotely that's very near and dear 
uh, to the telehealth community, um, like a really interesting new program that's been developed during the pandemic called Acute Hospital Care at Home, that's getting folks out of hospital rooms and back home sooner and quicker in a way that's amenable to all, uh, that we hope that there's gonna be action on. So our, our message to Congress would be pass HR 4040 and then add on some of the items that were left out. And one thing that, you know, is really exciting as, you know, we were diving into some research of, you know, the AHA, ATA and what you guys are doing is you recently launched, and I think you were a big part of this, um, a patient coalition for telehealth, um, you know, to take a quote for it for you is, you know, to, to secure access to, tele, to virtual care, the patient voice must be front and center debate for telehealth policy. So how are you? How are you working with these patient patient organizations? You know who are they, and you know how exactly does that patient voice then get represented? Well, at the end of the day, uh, the ATA represents over 50, 450 organizations, and they're the width and breadth of the U.S. healthcare industry. They're healthcare systems, they're payers, they're medical and pharmaceutical manufacturers. Uh, they're the solution providers that are coming up with the technology uh, to do it, uh, to, to enable all this telehealth. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, academic medical institutions, lots of physician and physician groups. Uh, but we also want to not make, uh, not lose sight of who we're doing this for. And at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's all for nothing if it's not for patients and it's not uh, improving the health and well-being and, and outcomes for the American people who stand to benefit from access to virtual care. And so uh, to that end, uh, you know, as, as we launched ATA Action, which is an affiliated trade organization that really does the, a lot of the advocacy work of the ATA uh, and is uh, adhering to ATA's policy principles, we have launched uh, a Patient Voices for Telehealth Coalition and we did this last uh, month during the uh, second annual Telehealth Awareness Week in order to lift up and raise the voices of the patients, um, in order to really make sure that the organizations that are involved that are disease specific and patient specific organizations um, are able to work uh, in, you know, towards our shared interests and shared goals in terms of both federal policy and state policy. And the organizations that were our founding partners for this at launch are some household names that are really doing amazing work. Uh, you know, the ALS Association, Cancer Support Community, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, Faces and Voices of Recovery, uh, National Organization for Rare Diseases, the Telehealth Equity Coalition, the Michael J. Fox uh, Foundation for Parkinson's Research, and, and on and on. And, and these are folks that are really on the front lines uh, making sure that uh, those in, in places of authority, uh, the policymakers uh, here in Washington, D.C. or in, in state capitals around the country are hearing direct uh, about the patient communities that they're striving to uh, achieve positive outcomes for. And so we're already working in the same space. We're already working towards the same goal. They all have vested interests in making sure that the patients they're fighting for have access to virtual care services. And so this will be a great one-stop shop where we can uh, really trade and tell, uh, get ideas as to opportunities that we can mutually uh, you know, achieve together and um, really make sure that that patient voice is front and center in all that we're doing. 
it's exciting to hear. And, you know, as, as we go through the list, you know, we, we did notice that, you know, the stroke population was one that, you know, at least is on the list, but I'm sure within the, within the organizations, those voices are there. Um, but, you know, we would love to do what we can as no stroke and within our community to, to have those patient voices heard. Well, thank you for that. And obviously, uh, stroke victims uh, and rehabilitation uh, who are working towards uh, that kind of better future and, and doing that hard work uh, obviously have stood and benefited from uh, access to virtual care technology and remote monitoring technology for years. And they've been a fantastic success story. So obviously, yeah. very happy to work with you. Oh, yeah. When you think of tele, I mean, telehealth, like early days with it, when you go back to like the virtual, you know, uh, CT, you know, neurologists being able to read CT scans, you know, through tele, like that was one of the earliest um, implication or um, developments of it. But um, yeah, to to flip on to, you know, the outcome side and, and what one thing that's really interesting to me is when, again, through the pandemic, say, you know, the likes of a telehealth provider was, I'm going to stay on David's example here because we've, folks know him, he's talked to what he does. But, um, and again, a lot of stroke survivors could relate. Um, you know, you could deliver a physical therapy session through telehealth, right? Or through, or even occupational therapy. I think speech and language is another excellent one. But what are the implications when, again, through, like, with the telehealth being delivered, it was the outcomes, right? Like, how do you make those measurements? How do we then have those measurements be attached to like the reimbursement codes that are needed, right? So, so how do you also work, you know, alongside these patient organizations, but then the innovators, the, you know, the, the likes of these digital health startups that are coming through and really trying to bring innovative care? Um, how do you think about you know, your goal to drive telehealth and blend it in with the need to assess outcomes through telehealth, right? Whether it's wearables or other kind of outcome measures. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Again, at the end of the day, all the services done via telehealth has to have to be clinically appropriate. Telehealth is healthcare. It's not something right. separate and apart. And yep. so we're asking to be held to, as a telehealth community, the same standards as in-person care, which means as good, if not better outcomes. And that is measurable. There's academic literature to buttress it. Obviously, something like the, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services annual physician fee schedule would not be offering these if they did not think it would lead to better health, health outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, there's a vested interest among our payers to make sure that they're getting value for money. Uh, as we think about moving and transitioning away from a fee-for-service uh, system, uh, which is pretty rigid about outcome in payment, you know, outcome in, uh, excuse me, <laughs> input in payment out, and more towards a system that really rewards and measures outcomes and, and reimburses accordingly for beneficial outcomes, then we know that telehealth will thrive. But just as you would do any other measurement for in-person care, uh, that has to be applied as rigidly uh, to virtual care as it would uh, to in-person. And uh, the academic literature and research out there 
the various uh, medical societies and associations nationally and at the state level uh, that are seeking, uh, you know, again, that, that uh, have that best interest of the patient at heart uh, really continues. And uh, licensed medical professionals are applying that same standard of care that they would apply to a patient in, in, in the same you know, physical proximity to them uh, as they are for their virtual care. The physician fee schedule um, in your comments that you made on your letter to CMS summarizing the proposed, it's in draft form now, but you did uh, speak in support of the RTM codes. And as, as a PT provider, um, it, you know, it, this now gives us the ability to have these touch points out outside the clinic walls. Um, what I find is there's a lot of um, um, lack of knowledge on, especially on that, those touch points of having to meet the 16, you know, 16, uh, uh, okay. 16 points of contact in 30 days. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot that has to be done to educate uh, providers on how to implement that into their workflows. But where do, do you feel that um, that's headed in the right direction? And what, what do you feel would if you, you know, what, what, what could be done better in that capacity? Yeah, it's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, the, uh, the administration, the CMS, uh, the regulators there, the good people that are doing their best to ensure that Medicare beneficiaries have access to the most up-to-date uh, clinically appropriate care are trying. And it was a huge success about half a decade ago when Medicare finally began covering remote physiologic monitoring technology. And, and, and that's something that the industry, the community had been asking for for a long, long time. And it did happen, uh, I think, because of our collective shared advocacy and really making the point that it is that uh, really appropriate care. We saw last year uh, that the, uh, the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expanded the remote monitoring technology beyond just physiologic monitoring into therapeutic monitoring. That's a really, there's nothing to say other than positive things about continuing to use the most innovative connected health technology uh, in, in, in terms of being on offer for Medicare beneficiaries. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of, uh, we think, policies that inhibit the full potential of this technology. It applies to, it has applied for several years to the remote physiologic monitoring uh, subset of codes. They, they took, frankly, faulty logic, we think, in having the 16 days of data where the, when there are reams of use cases that would say that that is uh, too much data, it's too rigid, uh, it's not flexible like it should be, uh, again, not taking full advantage of it. They've applied that thinking to remote therapeutic monitoring. Consequently, uh, the, the, the codes, which are uh, progress, which we're happy to see and, uh, and, and we welcome seeing, uh, are, are not as useful as they would have been if they listen to the ATA's letters and a lot of other smart folks who have sent letters and have echoed what we have said. And so they're, 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 while it's unlikely they're gonna back away significantly when, when the final physician fee schedule rule does finally emerge, uh, we still have to just keep uh, pounding the pavement, talking to CMS and they are willing to talk to us, talking to HHS leadership, talking to the administration, talking to policymakers, 
trying to do what we can to achieve what we can through the regulatory process. And also talking to members of Congress to say, uh, why don't we make it really easy for CMS, clear it up in legislation, remove things like the unnecessary 16 days of data requirement now found in regs. Yeah, well said. And, you know, we we do always end, like David said, with, with the magic wand question, which our listeners are well versed to. Um, we we realize, you know, you have a, a, a bit of a hard stop here. So we'll um, we'll take you off the hot seat this evening. But to make it short and simple, but I know you have a, um, a vet appointment to make it to. So we'll try to keep it simple here. Supporting the medical community for both humans and, and animals. <laughs> so. Well, let me reframe. What's what's the one problem that's keeping you up at night? Well, no, I, maybe I, not, I, and not your dog, not your dog's itchy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, of low hanging fruit that has yet to be cleared up, uh, exposed by the pandemic. Obviously, clear policies that could could and should be changed tomorrow because they make so much damn sense. And uh, that's at the federal level, that's at the state level. And it's not because there are nefarious bad actors out there that are trying to keep you know, access to telehealth down. It's just because there's inertia and, and sometimes in our political system in, in state capitals and in Washington, DC. So if I could wave a, a, a magic wand that's within the realm of reason and possibility, it would be to be in a place where in a year's time, the, the low-hanging fruit of, of barriers and impediments to the technology available now, that's possible now, uh, uh, right now in the real world, that those impediments would be uh, taken care of so that we can get down to the hard work of thinking through how to build a truly hybrid care system that's maximizing what's technologically possible in the best interest of the patient at every step in the continuum of care and every year of a person's life. Well said, Kyle. And thank you so much. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time, Kyle. Keep up, you know, all the all the brilliant leadership you're bringing to, to the community and really trying to, you know, the healthcare is not an easy place to be in. So thank you for taking the dive in and, and getting your feet wet within within healthcare. It's a, it's a uh it's a place where, you know, there's a lot of people who are, who are in support and a lot of folks I know you know, who listen to our podcast, who are, who are going to love this episode and hopefully have a bit of optimism towards what's coming. Every reason to be optimistic. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.